This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Apostates Anonymous, the show you turn to when you're no longer an evangelical, or even a Christian. Join hosts Matthew J. DiStefano and Keith Giles as they tip over just about every sacred cow known to man. You're sure to have a good time, if you're a heathen or heretic or apostate or reprobate. If you're an evangelical, maybe you won't have such a good time. But either way, we want you to listen. You can check out Apostates Anonymous wherever you get your podcast fix. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast. Game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. In today's episode, we're starting a new season, season two. And we begin season two with several episodes engaging Tony Kushner's play, Angels in America. And this ties in with our theme for the season, Queering the Bible. Stay tuned for an explanation as to what that even means. I'm your host, Jennifer Bird. And I'm your other host, Jean Patrol. So nice to be back with you. It is. It's so good to be in the studio again. I'm really excited about what we have planned. Me too. Me too. And hey, listeners, today we're starting a two-part conversation about angels in America, just like Jennifer said. So, Jennifer, I wanted to fill people in on just what angels in America is, in case anybody doesn't know, but I just wanted to see if there's anything that you wanted to talk about first. I think that's a good place to start. All right. I feel like when we talk about queering the Bible, the first thing that I should talk about is this term queer. So I want to take care to say that I'm using it affectionately. Yes, indeed. There have been times in history when it has not been used affectionately, when it's been a slur against lesbian, bisexual, gay, and trans people. So during the Stonewall protests when gay people in New York were protesting police violence against gay people, when they marched, they shouted, we're here, we're queer, get used to it. We're here, we're queer, get used to it. So it's an effort to reclaim the word so that it can't be used to wound people. And that's the sense in which I'm using it. And when I think about the phrase queering the Bible. What I'm talking about is looking at the way that queer writers, writers who identify as gay or who write about gay folks, I'm thinking about the way that queer writers use biblical references to explore matters of concern to them. And Tony Kushner is a heavy hitter in this regard. <laughs> we'll also be talking about a modernist writer called Diuna Barnes, who did not identify as lesbian, but who's been claimed by lesbians and who loved, <laughs> loved women all her life. I think she just didn't like labels, wasn't comfortable with claiming labels. And we'll also be talking about Emily Dickinson. Same thing. She didn't identify as lesbian, but lesbians have claimed her and a number of others. Even though historically... 
The church has been and still is in many quarters not friendly to gay folks. Gay writers still claim the Bible and still use it as a way to explore things that are important to them. Does that jive with you? Yeah, that does jive with me. And I also wanted to say there are many LGBTQ scholars in the field of biblical studies. So there are people writing about biblical texts with a queer eye, if you will, um, or writing in ways that that take the biblical texts very seriously. And when sometimes that means they're going to read it differently than the tradition has, and it highlights things for us that I think are really exciting. One of the one of the I have a whole list of biblical scholars who are writing within either doing queer work with the Bible or identify as queer and are gauging biblical texts. Perhaps we'll just share some of those in the show notes. But one of the first people I think of is Ken Stone, who is on the faculty. He was a dean, but I think he's now just back to being full-time faculty at Chicago Theological Seminary. And he's in, he teaches in Hebrew Bible. And one of the convocations, at least a decade ago, he, he delivered and he was talking about essentially doing a queer reading of the Bible. And that is that when you can look at the biblical texts have two different themes or ideas on a particular theme, if we can see that the Bible itself has to be read in a queer way. It has more than one voice. So you there's a challenge there. There's a direction. There's a progress. That gives us a standing today to do something similar, to do taking these texts and doing something new or, you know, engaging in, t- in terms of context. He had a really lovely way of kind of bringing up these two different ways of queering the Bible even for people of faith. And I think that's a really important thing. I know that our listeners come from all kinds of different backgrounds in terms of religious identities, and I love that. I also just think it's really important to note that people within the faith traditions themselves, Christian and Jewish, are claiming queer voices, queer identities, and are not giving up the texts, you know? So I think that that's an important thing. And some of my favorite scholars have been doing that kind. Those are the people I connect with. So my colleagues essentially are primarily folks who are doing that kind of work. So reclaiming, reclaiming, I suppose you could say in a way, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Reclaiming. Yeah. Yeah. And Tony Kushner is certainly part of that. Yes. Listeners, Tony Kushner's Angels in America, the subtitle is A Gay Fantasia on National Themes, and it won a Pulitzer Prize. You can watch it on Hulu, you can rent it at libraries. So even if you missed it on Broadway, and even if there's not a production being mounted near you, you still can see it if you search for it on Hulu. It's such a visual feast of a play. It has amazing theatrical spectacles. It is so much fun. It won two Tony Awards. And I think maybe its highest honor was that Mike Nichols decided to adapt it into a star-studded <laughs> HBO miniseries. Right. I mean, you know you've made it when, yes. right? Yes, and yeah. definitely star-studded, yeah. Yeah, it really is. And it's a. if we're going to talk about genre, The play is a magical realist drama, and it has two parts. And the first part is Millennium Approaches. The second part is Perestroika. And it's set in the United States at the start of the 1980s AIDS crisis. And just to give you a really quick summary of the plot, the play tells the intertwined stories of Pryor, 
a man dying of AIDS, Pryor's longtime companion, Lewis, who leaves Pryor when Pryor gets sick, when Pryor needs him most. Lewis takes a lover, a married, closeted gay guy who's Mormon and Republican. There's a complicated identity. (laughs) But also not terribly uncommon. (laughs) Probably not terribly uncommon, right? And Joe's Mormon mother, Hannah, comes into the picture to take care of Joe's wife, Harper, whose mind breaks. Joe has been gaslighting her for years, so at a certain point, her mind just breaks. And then there's also Roy Cohn, who was a real guy, McCarthy-era politico. And listeners might recognize the name. He is the person who prosecuted the Julius and Ethel Rosenberg case. And also, he was a mentor to Donald Trump. Not everybody knows that, Mm. but he was Donald Trump's mentor. Wow. And there's also Belize, a gay black ex-drag queen who becomes a nurse to both Pryor and Roy Cohn. At a certain point, they're both in the hospital together, and Belize is their nurse. They're all going through personal changes. And I should point out that the play, which is set in the 80s, the 80s is a time of tremendous geopolitical change. Right. The, and the characters talk about it in terms of end times. They're not necessarily talking about, I mean, of course, it is a reference to the book of Revelation, but the characters aren't making claims having to do with the book of Revelation. They're thinking about things like the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, right? the end of the Cold War order, the fall of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and just this sense of uncertainty and- about what comes next. Yeah, jump in. And even the heightened awareness of climate change and the the changes around the world. That was a big piece for Harper, at least in in the play, right? Her awareness of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's really scared about the ozone layer. Yeah. The destruction of the ozone layer. I think the language around climate catastrophe was a little bit different in the 80s. That is what Harper's scared of. Right. And in a sense, maybe we should all be a little bit more like Harper. <laughs> right. It's interesting. In terms of the urgency of it, not not just of being terrified, but the urgency. Yeah. Right. And her vision, right? I mean, one of the things that's really interesting in the play is that people have visions. That's yes. one of the ways that the play participates in a kind of a like biblical approach to imagination, that there are these grand visions. And sometimes the people in the play who seem the craziest, they're, they're having visions and they're perceiving things that are true that others cannot yeah. perceive. Yep. It's an, it's an interesting, almost a sidebar, perhaps, to what you and I are most interested in talking about. But I was fascinated when I think I've watched it through for a third time this last week, because it's such a great series, when, yes, you have someone having visions who is perhaps losing her grasp on reality, and they're pairing it with a man who's suffering from AIDS, having visions about his body, about life. And those are somewhat more terrifying visions, actually, or more trippy, perhaps. I don't know. I I found it and I was wondering if he was trying to make some sort of commentary there or if he's just pointing to this element of human experience that happens in various ways, perhaps, right? That there's, you know, when you get to your to the outer limits of yourself, other synapses are firing and bring and create certain things. I don't know. I I didn't think it was a negative commentary. I thought it was a really fascinating um, set of observations he was making for us in that. Yeah, me me too. 
I mean, I think it's safe to say that at least some of us, maybe not all of us, and <laughs> I can't decide if it's a gift or a curse, or maybe it's okay. both, right. but some of us have extreme cognitive experiences that exceed the rational. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's sometimes when people start talking about angels. Yeah. There's a really interesting Annie Dillard essay. I wasn't really planning to bring this up, and I know we're not planning to talk about it for a long time. But Annie Dillard, who's a nature writer, has just a very powerful experience. She's looking at a landscape. She has a very powerful experience. It's emotionally overwhelming. It's cognitively inexplicable. And she, when she's trying to talk about it, she says, well, if I had to talk about it, I might say I saw something like an angel. It's, I think when people start talking about angels, they're reaching for a visual image to picture an internal experience. And that happens to Pryor. And Pryor's angel, uh, I feel like I should back up and say what all the biblical references are. I mean, there are so many, and we won't be able to talk about all of them. There's Jacob, there's Jonah, there's Lazarus, there's the Mark of Cain. Like, what biblical reference is not in Angels in America? It's just all over the play. But in particular, it really repurposes apocalyptic motifs. And we already talked about end times. And there's also Revelation, Judgment Day, course, angels. And when we talk about visions, we're talking about prophecy. And then the other really big one is new heaven. So why don't we talk about that when we come back? Jennifer, do you want to talk some about traditional ways of picturing angels or thinking about angels and traditional, conventional ways of picturing heaven, talking about heaven, and then maybe after that we can read the incredible vision of heaven from Angels in America? Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting because this is one of those things, or these two topics, I would say, angels and heaven, I think I think these are much more fraught than some topics. And I say that because for me, even when I was fairly conservative, even fundamentalist, and, and truly, truly had a very strong connection to the concept of heaven, I still didn't like angels. And I didn't like the some, some of the more sweet and syrupy kinds of ways that people talked about angels and heaven and, and bless you and all these, that kind of language that feels almost a little bit um, escapist to me. And so I think about what, you know, if I if we were in a class right now, I'd be asking people to talk about that. Like, what are your understandings of angels? And what what associations do you have? What how would you depict heaven? And, and I love that scene near the beginning. I think it's maybe episode two, where Lewis and Pryor are just hanging out. And one of them asks the other to what does heaven even look like? And he describes something and, you know, cold, windy day, and you know, not at all what I would picture. But you know, they're teasing each other about this. But, you know, when I think of angels, you, right, you did reference visions that are in the biblical context. You know, angels themselves actually have a very, have a range of presentation according to the biblical texts. And most of it is something we should be slightly terrified of <laughs> and not, yeah. not something that's really sweet and comforting because each time, right, the angel or messenger comes from the same word has to say, don't be afraid, 
right? That should tell us that this is not a welcome sight, but potentially slightly terrifying. But anyway, uh, you know, when we started talking about this, and I was thinking, you know, in my evangelical days, I'd seen Amy Grant's angels watching over me, right? And this concept of something that's meant to be comforting, but there's this supernatural vision or supernatural idea of a, a being on my side, you know? And and I think the more traditional imagery of heaven does come from, as you said, from the book of Revelation, where it, at least for within Christian contexts, because it's predominantly a Christian idea. And the what's depicted actually doesn't appeal to me very much, and so what ended, what people end up doing with this concept of heaven then has never really connected well for me. <laughs> and I think that's why I so, I actually, when I have to be honest, when Angels in America came out as this series, I don't think I saw it or heard about it as a play. I was actually not going to watch it because of the word angel. And I just, I don't want to talk about whatever you're going to say about some sort of sweet being protecting people, right? It just doesn't work for me. But I did watch it and was so glad that I did because he's really, really trying to shake that complicit or sweetness idea, I think. I think he's doing something much more, um, something that I think human experience much more generally speaking, can connect with as compared to only focusing on heaven and the spiritual realm, and I'm going to just trust that God will protect me. And that kind of a language is what I tend to hear. I know that's a, there's a form of a stereotype there, but that's what I tend to think of or hear. And so when we get into some of these descriptions um, from the play itself, um, it, it's it's actually quite moving to me to see and think about this, the alternatives that Kushner offers in through these characters when he's when he has various descriptions of angels or heaven in the play. I would agree with that. There are no cliched angels in here. Right. <laughs> and no cliches of heaven either. And I think one of the things that's really exciting about the play is the way that it really re-envisions and re-imagines angels, revelation, heaven, prophecy, visionary experience. I, I think it's really exciting just to give our listeners a sense of how different Kushner's angels are. Yeah. They are sexualized. So Pryor has an orgasm every time right. he has an interaction <laughs> with the angel. And so does right. the Mormon mother, by the way. Exactly. Um, so these angels are, there's this conflation of erotic experience with spiritual experience. I think exactly. in most Western Christian tradition, there's a tendency to separate those two, but Kushner reintegrates them. I mean, they're integrated in something like the Song of Solomon, and you could probably point to a couple of other things. But in practice, over time, the tradition has separated them, but yep. Kushner yep. really brings them together. And he does. And it's in a really delightful way that also makes sense, right? The extreme, the intensity, the passion, the urgency, it, at least in Pryor's experiences with the with the vision and the message, or, um, it makes sense to me that it would be something erotic as well, because it is such an intense experience, right? Yeah. I do. This is probably not what you wanted me to say today, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. The the vision of God in Isaiah, the prophet, when Isaiah has his call narrative at the beginning, it's in chapter six of Isaiah. Do you do you know the thing? I'm, I saw high and lifted up the Lord sitting on a throne. Yeah, and his robe 
filled the temple. I'm just going to ruin that vision for everybody right now. I'm sorry, but not sorry. Because actually, in the Hebrew, it's saying that his testicles filled the temple, <laughs> not the edge of his robe. And what's yeah. interesting, yeah, and it's interesting because it is funny. And there's a lot more bodiliness to the depiction of God or Yahweh or Adonai um, than most people realize. But I think there's something that this, you know, I think there's a nod there in that, right, to what you're suggesting and to what Kushner ends up doing with Pryor. Does that make sense? With the sexualization Absolutely. of this vision yeah. on, a, on I, a certain level? Yeah. Yeah. And actually, just to piggyback on your point about Isaiah and testicles, there are several <laughs> other moments in the Hebrew Bible where the narrative sexualizes what's going on and calls attention to fertility. Somebody, you know, pl he placed his hand under Abraham's thigh or Jacob's thigh is wounded in the wrestling with the angel. And I do think that in Jewish patriarchal traditions, there's a way in which certainly the sexuality of the father anyway is sacred. So yes. that's that's. There's a way in which Kushner's play really calls that out. Um, yes. So that's, yes. I liked that. Actually, I really like that digression. Oh, Jennifer, <laughs> I never have any agenda for you. I, there's never like, oh, I hope Jennifer doesn't say that. Or <laughs> I didn't think I, that you did. Or, but I hope Jennifer says this. Actually, we all like you at your most outrageous. So, um, okay. yeah, always go yeah, for it. Let me tell listeners how prior experiences the angel of America. This is another thing we want to remember that this is an angel of America. So I don't yes. know that we'll get to it in this particular episode, but we want to talk about why an angel of America? Why does America need an angel? And what is the yeah. angel about? But right. Pryor is having a vision. And this angel he experiences the angel of America as a disembodied voice until she crashes through his bedroom <laughs> ceiling at the end of act one. And she announces, greetings, prophet, the great work begins. The messenger has arrived. So it is this messenger coming from some other realm to Pryor's room. And that's how we... That's how we see her. So we'll circle back to what the angel is doing, I would say. Is there anything else you wanted to read about angels or say about angels before we start talking about heaven, Jennifer? Well, you know, there was another piece of this that I thought, why is it that we do keep referring to the way angels are depicted in scripture? What is that? I think that will always be a thing, an idea or an issue for me is, you know, obviously for Kushner, it was it was a no brainer. At the same time, I do wonder, do we have alternative options? Are there alter, you know, other ways of trying to talk about this form of human experience or human and supernatural blended together or whatever. Because, you know, she, when we do finally see the messengers, you know, she looks like an angel. She looks like a human with wings, you know. All of these pieces of we're drawing upon what we see in these ancient texts and traditions and bringing them right into our current contexts and traditions. And we might have shifted the way we would want to depict something like that. But it also is a form of perhaps even a form of comfort to people that it 
that she does look like what angels tend to look like, a human body with wings. And then what she's doing uh, is at times a little bit different. I'm, I'm laughing because I was just reminded of the fact there's a point where they're talking to each other and they start quoting The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's this delightful, like, what are we doing very different than what you would normally see an angel doing. Anyway, that was the one thought that I, you know, why are we drawing upon biblical depictions and ideas? Well, it's familiar. And we might want to move into something new and different, but we but it is something that connects for many people, not everyone, but it does connect for a lot of people. So that was my other tidbit about angels, I suppose. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for that. Yeah. Did you want to read the description of heaven from yes. Yes. Revelation? Yeah, let's do and that. Then, and then we'll read Belize's vision of heaven. Yes. Yes. This is the one that I said I don't really connect with. I don't I don't know why, if it's because I'm more of a country girl and I like simple and plain and I like woods and green and water and sky. I don't know. But this description that comes from you know, Revelation chapter 21, and is known to a lot of people or is familiar, it just, it's interesting to me. So anyway, here we go. Here it is, starting in chapter 21, verse 10, and uh, we've left out a few pieces here and there. And in the spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me a holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It has the glory of God and a radiance like a very rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It has a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates are inscribed the names that are the names of the 12 tribes of the Israelites. And in the text, they list the names. The angel who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall. The wall is built of jasper, while the city is pure gold, clear as glass. Foundations of the wall of the city are adorned with every jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each of the gates is a single pearl, and the street of the city is pure gold, transparent as glass. Beautiful. It is. Your reading, I mean. <laughs> Thank you. I'm like you. I don't want to live here. <laughs> right? But- your your reading is really beautiful, and this is how deep I am. The first thing that comes to my mind is, "What the heck is chrysophrase? <laughs> what what is that? What is that? I don't know. Well, I don't know about that. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> I love thank it. you for the reading. Thank You're you. welcome. So yes. I want to say one. I just want to say one thing about this, like something that struck me before we talk about the angels in America vision of heaven. So it says right at the beginning in the spirit, like I saw this in the vision. There's never any assertion anywhere in the Bible (laughs) that heaven actually has pearly gates or streets of gold, but you run into people who think that that is what the Bible says, that this description is what they think heaven 
is. And and there's this spatial metaphor, right, that heaven is up, mm-hmm. that, that we go up there or down somewhere else. Like there's this spatial metaphor of, of what it is. What it actually says is not that anybody goes up to heaven, but that heaven comes down. Yep. And also that all of this is a dream vision. Mm-hmm. So there's no assertion. <laughs> That something like this exists anywhere. I mean, w- w- you agree, right? I do. The whole point of apocalyptic literature, right, is a vision, a metaphor, some sort of, right, there's a message here about change in the future, in the near future. The heaven comes to earth. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And this this is the bride of, yeah, I don't want to get off in all the language, but yeah, absolutely, right? it's a vision. Yeah. Okay. I just... Yeah, no, that's to, an important. Just I think wanted to point that out. I think out. that's a really important thing to point yeah. out. Honestly, big yeah. misunderstanding. Yes. Yeah. So there is also a vision of heaven in this play. Yes. And I'm saying this play. It's two parts, but I, it's all one play. A play in two parts. Mm-hmm. And so this is from the second part of the play. And Roy Cohn, who in the play is portrayed as a a pretty bad dude, like really mm-hmm. debased, really unethical. Yes. Um, and the real Roy Cohn was disbarred for trying to steal a dying client's fortune, by the way. And and he was himself a closeted homosexual, and he persecuted gay people. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when we think of the McCarthy scare, we call it the red scare. Mm-hmm. But another component that of that was a lavender scare. Yes. Get communists out of government and get gay people out of government. That's right. Mostly gay men is what people like Roy Cohn were, were anxious about, even though he was one. Right. And that, I don't know, I guess just some weird self-hating thing. I don't know what to say about that. That's a, actually a fairly common issue, really, right? Yeah. Bigger, yeah. T- bigger topic there. <laughs> Right. In terms of, right. Yeah, because of the way patriarchy plays out. Yeah. Yeah. So here's a different vision. Yes. And it's on Roy Cohn's, it's at Roy Cohn's deathbed and Belize, who, by the way, Roy Cohn has called an N. Mm-hmm. Roy Cohn is extremely racist. Mm-hmm. And, but Belize is taking care of Roy and Roy asks about the afterlife. What's it like? The afterlife. I mean, he's dying and he wants to know. Belize gives a vision. First, he asks, hell or heaven? <laughs> and Roy says, come on, you know, I, I want to know what, what, whatever. What's the afterlife like? What, and, what am I about to see? Really, what is am what I he's asking, see? right? And Belize says, so I'm not going to read. It, it's a back and forth. It's a dialogue, but I'm only going to read Belize's vision of heaven. So Belize says, Like San Francisco. I will say what Roy says. He says, a city. Good. I was worried it'd be a garden. I hate that shit. Oops. (laughs) Beep, beep, Matt. Beep that out. Um, So Belize says, mmm, big city, overgrown with weeds, but flowering weeds. On every corner, a wrecking crew and something new and crooked going up catty corner to that. Windows missing in every edifice like broken teeth. Fierce gusts of gritty wind and a gray, high sky full of ravens. Prophet birds, Roy. Piles of trash, but lapidary like rubies and obsidian and diamond-colored cowspit streamers in the wind and voting booths. And everyone in Balenciaga gowns with red corsages and big dance palaces full of music and lights and racial impurity and gender confusion. And all the deities are Creole, mulatto, 
brown as the mouths of rivers. Race, taste, and history finally overcome. And you ain't there. (laughs) (laughs) That's something, huh? It is. It's a it's delicious. There's something so humanizing and beautiful to me in that description of heaven. It's yeah. a celebration, right? Yeah. And it's imperfect. It's not yeah. striving. There's this idea of perfection that comes up a, a lot in religious culture. Exactly. And it's probably more destructive than than helpful. Absolutely. Um, yeah. 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 And I want to say also, I, I mean, I've really reflected a lot about this vision of heaven. I, I've I've written about the play. I have a new article coming out in a scholarly journal. So I, I've really thought deeply about this. And what I think it comes down to, Jennifer, is that in the vision of the play, in Kushner's vision and in the vision of the play, heaven is a multi-ethnic democracy that is truly inclusive of everyone. Right, right. Exactly. And I do I do really get excited about that. That's exactly. really that, that's beautiful to me. Right. You know, this and the thing for me is what you've just said, I think kind of points in the direction of why the heaven in Revelation bothers me, right? It's a it's trying to depict perfection, but perfection of a certain kind instead of what I think of as really just delightful and exciting, which is diversity and inclusion Mm -hmm. and multi-language, multi-everything, right? Yeah. All the kinds of people, all the kinds of ideas and culture and language and and art um, is all in there as compared to something that is pristine that you don't want to touch. That's to me what I, you know, what I see in the revelation. Yeah, you're reminding me of something. And I don't mean to pick on Mormons, okay? So... (laughs) But I, I, I was out in Salt Lake City, Utah once. I was an undergraduate and I was at the undergraduate literature conference. And because we were undergraduates and we had no money, faculty from the college were putting us up in their homes. So I stayed with this Mormon couple. And that was a big culture. That was new for me. They were nice, of course, really nice. I remember going out into their yard and they had this really perfectly landscape yard, and I really mean perfect, and they had rows of tulips. And the tulips went red, yellow, red, yellow, red, yellow. And it struck me as really creepy, like really Stepford. So this kind of... (laughs) I'm sorry. Like I said, I don't want to pick on Mormons. I'm sure lots of them have nice, messy gardens. And my garden looks like, oh, good Lord, like you could get lost in my garden. It's crazy. But the point is... Belize's vision is that there's got to be some mess yeah. like for heaven to be really engaging and exciting. And and I do like that. I like that. I do too. You keep making me want to keep having these other conversations because I think that's a big piece of what's also going on for two of the characters, the, the mess of humanity, the yes. mess of dying, the mess of this is reality, though. This is what it is to be human. Yeah that so many people have a very hard time with. And I think in part because many people are taught to think about this perfection and purity and all this other stuff is what God wants or is what is good. And and I don't agree with that much of the time. And I think that's really why I think you and I both kind of are moved by that depiction of heaven. Yeah. You know, I'm looking at our time, and I'm thinking we may need to wrap this one up, but I was wondering if you wanted to, 
your comments, as you and I started talking about this, you had said there are four things that you think this this play is doing with uh, apocalyptic literature, doing with this apocalyptic vision. As I heard you talk about it, the four ways, themes that that Kushner is playing with, right? Yes, the vision of heaven, um, a vision of healing and reconciliation, which is what we're going to touch on in our next episode, the figure of Jacob as an image of struggle and wrestling. And that comes up and I think yes. multiple characters identify with that kind of Im- that particular character from the biblical text. But then you also you also mentioned that there's that Kushner is working with apocalyptic literature, I would say, as it was intended, or a little little closer to as it was intended, which is to help us reimagine an idea or reimagine something that's possible, right? There's he works with these ideas of prophecy as a way to call something out and as a way to call something new into being or the the projection or idea of something new. And, And there's a constant reference to the threshold of revelation, baby, throughout the play. And that's, you know, it sounds a little trippy in the play, but that's also really what's going on with apocalyptic literature is that. And, and, you know, you and I have talked about apocalyptic literature before, but I think that so many people misunderstand it, right? I agree. They think of it as a literal depiction instead of a metaphorical something to get your creative juices flowing or to reassure and all of that. We don't need to get into that. But I just wanted our listeners to know there is a lot of fodder in this play for us in this yes. in this particular podcast, Wild Olive. So I wanted to leave them with what's to come, I suppose. Yes, very appropriately. <laughs> um, there's a, a preview of things to come. Yes. Thank you. Yes. It's been fun talking with Eugene. Yeah. Bye, Jennifer. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Matt Byrne, editor and producer for the podcast. Thank you for listening to season two, episode one of Wild Olive. If you like game-changing conversations about literature, culture, and the Bible, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell some friends all about Wild Olive. You can find episode notes at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Wild Olive. New episodes on the first and third Fridays of each month. Our music is composed by Nick Stubblefield. Want to ask a question? Email the podcast at connect at wildolivebibleandculture.org. We'll catch you next time for more wild conversations. We'll see you then.